The definition of agricultural literacy includes having an understanding of the historical significance of agriculture. Today, we work to do just that. This is Talk Ag to Me. Hello and welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brendan Black, and in today's episode, we explore the history of agriculture and the historical significance of agriculture in all kinds of different societies. And to help us with this episode, we have our guest today, Paul Gallagher, uh, the, one of the co-hosts of the History in Motion podcast. Uh, Paul was a great addition to this episode, brought a lot of insight from the historical significance portion of it, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I think that you'll, you guys will really enjoy it. I hope that Paul enjoyed it. It seemed like he did. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so make sure you check Paul out and all of his stuff. I'll put it down in the description below. Um, and also make sure you check out all of our stuff. Uh, for those of you who do not know, we actually just launched a uh, Minecraft series that's actually going over similar topics to this same episode. We're talking about the revolutions of agriculture, which is actually talked about in this episode. Uh, so we're just hitting you with all kinds of history of agricultural knowledge in the past few episodes and, and uh, series here. But Go ahead and make sure you check out the uh, Minecraft Advancement series. Uh, episodes are out every second Friday of the month. Um, so hope, hopefully you guys are enjoying those as much as I am. Also, make sure that you check out all of our social medias. You like, comment, subscribe, share, do all the things. Make sure, as you as we always say, you share not just with your online friends, but with your offline ones and your family as well. Uh, that being said, if you are interested in donating to help us out, you can go to our Patreon page. That'll also be down in the description below. But that's all I have for you guys this week. So I hope to catch you in the next one. And here's the episode. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Uh, so my name is Paul Gallagher. I am what I would consider a, a very amateur historian, so not a classically trained historian by any stretch of the imagination, but um, someone who just loved history um, my whole life. And then a um, friend of mine, um, we started talking a lot and he had studied history in, in university and really wanted to actually get use of his history degree because most people don't have the, the luxury of using that degree um, kind of in practice. So we just kind of had a, a little bit of a chat and said, hey, let's uh, let's maybe put a podcast together. And so we've created a podcast called uh, the History in Motion podcast, where we feature a specific leader throughout history. And we try to look at like a decision or a series of decisions um, that they've made and try to, you know, try to put some nuance around if the decisions they made were good, who were they as people. But the most interesting part, I think, is looking at how people have grown up from humble beginnings all the way up to where they are today. And I think something that we're really guilty of doing is you know, this person grew up on a farm, skip over 15 years of their life, and then they jumped into politics, where I feel like there's so much that happens in that period of time and so much about how they can grow and learn as a person that I think we jump over. So when you kind of reached out to say, hey, let's let's talk a little bit about history, and it kind of clicked in for me that this will be a really interesting area for us to explore. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to give a little bit more of that nuance that I, I like to look for with some of these conversations. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to explore, like you mentioned, you know, some of those uh, kind of deeper details when it comes to some of the the famous leaders throughout history it, um, are often looked over, but a lot of those details are what makes them who they are as a leader. And so I think that I'll be that'll be interesting to dive into, especially as we talk into uh, what some of those leaders' backgrounds had to do with, um, and some of those have having to do with my area of expertise, which is uh, agriculture. And so, as I'm sure you know, quite a few leaders throughout history have been uh, pretty prominent members of agricultural communities, especially as we go even further back into history, as some of those uh, civilizations were almost entirely reliant on agriculture as their main form of uh, food production, which I mean, arguably the agriculture is the way that we're entirely reliant on food production today, but it's 
is different. You know, older civilizations, they were reliant on their own agriculture. Now we kind of outsource it. We have an individual industry just for agricultural production. We're not, you know, each person doesn't have to grow their own food uh, or have a specialized part of each individual town that is dedicated to agriculture for us to be able to survive. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be fun. So let's, let's jump into it. Uh, you, before we go into my whole long rant, as we usually do, I do have a couple questions for you uh, before we uh, get started here. So you mentioned a little bit that you are uh, very interested in history, but do not have as much of a background in agriculture. Uh, would you mind explaining what, if any, experience, knowledge, perceptions you have about the agriculture industry or anything within it? Yeah, I think so. I kind of grew up around like my dad worked for a company that did um, logistics for farming communities. So I'm in Ontario right now. And uh, just I grew up just outside of Toronto. And so there's a lot of agriculture um, in the area. So just kind of understanding a little bit about you know, how different communities are kind of set up around agriculture. And it's very interesting kind of around where I live, you have kind of cities and then it's like a road and then it's just farmland right after it. So some people are like living kind of right on the edges of it. But I know for me, like my perception of the industries is it seems like, you know, every farmer, I wouldn't say is struggling, but it's, it seems like it's very touch and go a lot of times. And there's a lot of challenges. Like, I don't know if it's a great example, but I watched um, Clarkson's farm, the, uh, the British show about kind of you know, he's, he's a talk show host and then he has a farm. He's like, I'm going to actually farm for real. And you kind of just see all the things that he goes through. And it's a bit of a silly show, but like, you can actually see like some of the challenges they go through. So I know it's definitely an industry that's, you know, it's, you know, there's the, I guess people who are trying to do it on their own versus kind of the big, more industrial operations. But yeah, I don't really know much else other than like, we need it. <laughs> if we don't have it, we're all in really, really big trouble. And we're so reliant and I think, you know, we go to the grocery store and we see there's food there and we take it for granted. Um, I know it's something that definitely living in a city, you don't really realize the the whole process that it goes through to, to kind of get from, you know, the field out to, um, to the grocery store and then to your home. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And yeah, I've watched that show too. It is is pretty entertaining, uh, but it does realize it does highlight some real uh, issues that farmers face on the daily, which uh, could be, you know, on their own operation, some of the struggles that they go through trying to get their work done, or it could be something larger scale. You know, it could be a market issue. It could be uh, issues like you have a cow go down and now you can't sell that meat. So you're dealing with a loss in terms of your inputs that year, or it could be that you have a new regulation that comes down and now you can't produce the things you wanted to produce because they didn't follow those regulations that year. And so there, there's a, a large variety of issues that agriculture faces that I, it's interesting that that's the, uh, the, the connection that you make with it is the hardships that the farmers go through. I think that's really uh, something that doesn't get talked about enough. And people think about farming, they typically think about, well, yeah, it's, you know, it has to do with, you know, cows, plows and sows, and there's all kinds of different work that goes into it, but they don't really, uh, not to say appreciate, but they don't really recognize some of the, the harder parts of the industry that goes into it. So that I, I like the, the way you put that. Um, so you kind of answered my next question already, but I have another question for you, which is uh, what do you feel kind of just from your own perceptions of it? Uh, what do you feel is the relationship between agriculture and modern society as well as its role throughout history? I think today it's like, I was just kind of saying like, it's, it seems like almost two separate worlds in a sense. Like you live in a city and the food comes to you and you don't really ask many questions about where it came from. Um, but in history, I think it's, it was touching everybody's life, unless you were maybe this super ultra rich living in a city, but even then you still probably had part of your portfolio of things you owned was a vineyard or a large plantation or something to do with farming and agriculture that probably made you a lot of money. Um, so I know like when we look at 
you know, history, it's everybody either started as every civilization, I should say, started as a small farming community and then grew from there. And there's like a really interesting connection. And I would love to look into it more one day is just like how cities and civilizations grow based on their ability to farm. Well, I think is super interesting. And you look at like Rome, the, one of the reasons like Rome and like Greece and that and Egypt were able to grow so quickly was they were able to farm really well. We had the Nile river going through Egypt and that was where pretty much the entire population lived. And, you know, they made it work versus some other places took more time to kind of grow because they were relying on other areas to grow food for them. And then the logistics networks had to be built out. So yeah, I think it's, I think we're almost at like a, a crossroads now where it's not, it was fundamental to pretty much every, every part of someone's life. And maybe I don't know what year it happened, but then it just be kind of came to a point where we got maybe really good at it and we didn't have to think about it anymore. Cause we're not worried about famines or anything like that. Like we maybe were, you know, a hundred years ago. So yeah, it's just been a really crazy change. And I love looking back in history because you kind of really realize that, you know, oh, there was a riot in this city and it was because it didn't have any bread because there was a grain failure in some area. And now the whole the whole kingdom's, you know, on, on fire. So, you know, something small like that. So, yeah, it's just very different. And thankfully, we're not in those stages anymore. But, yeah, it's very, very two different worlds that we live in now. Yeah, definitely. I think you highlighted some really important points there. Uh, One of those being kind of the focal point of my podcast here, which is at some point in history, we kind of became disconnected from the source of our food, whether it be because like you said, we just got so good at making it that it didn't really need to be a priority for everyone to think about all the time, or whether it be for other reasons, such as, you know, there are other jobs open that uh, allowed people to kind of move away from that area, which I I think it's a combination of things that kind of led to that. And we can talk about that as we go. Um, But yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of my podcast here is to kind of re reestablish that connection to agriculture, kind of re uh, refamiliarize people with that source of their food. And I think that one of the ways that we can do that is, like you said, exploring some of the roles that agriculture has played throughout history, but also the the way that civilizations have evolved and have have evolved with their dependence on food um, and, and how that dependence on food has evolved into different capacities as well. Uh, we, we You talked uh, briefly there about how, you know, there, there have been riots caused because, you know, civilizations haven't had enough bread. Uh, that's something that I, I do want to touch on because that's something that I think is very relevant as to the relationship between food and, and society. Um, but there have been more than one occasion throughout history in which there have been conflicts between the people and usually their government because of a scarcity in food or because of misrepresentation of agriculturalists or because of, you know, this, the other thing, there have been, you know, multiple factors that have caused those conflicts, but it's all, it's ultimately because of, you know, the one thing that we can all agree on, which is we need to eat. And so if you restrict somebody's ability to eat, they're not going to be very happy with you. And that usually causes some long-term complications for either you or them or everyone in between. And usually it's, it's that last one. Yeah. And I think if you look at any time in history, if there's one way to keep the masses in check and make sure they're not rebelling is make sure they have enough food. And then everything else kind of comes after that. So yeah, I think you make a great point. It's so integral to just a we need we need food to live which is a basic necessity but from a empire building standpoint kingdom building standpoint city building standpoint being able to control the flow of food is like almost like number one two and three on your list and then you can deal with the other stuff later yeah no exactly uh so i wanted to kind of highlight another point that you had brought up there which is like the uh your example you used was with Egypt on, on, you know, the Nile, uh, and how they built their entire civilizations on this one river. Um, do you happen to know why it was so significant that they built their civilizations on a riverfront? I think it's just, if you look at Egypt from a terrain perspective, it's a very dry kind of desert kind of 
um, setup, but along the Nile, you have this rich, lush kind of, you know, there's floodplains and different things. And it's just so easy to a fish transportation is another thing. You can get things up and down the, the Nile really quickly. Um, and then, like we were saying, like you, you need water to, to plant things and to grow things. And I think it just kind of, that's just naturally how we look at where a lot of cities are built. Like if you look at, you know, even across North America, across Europe, pretty much every major city is built on either the coast, a lake or a river there. You rarely see just a city just plopped in the middle of land. And they're like, all right, we're just going to throw it here because those bodies of water are just so, so important. So I think the Nile, it's just, they say like the Nile gives life. That was kind of the Egyptians way of kind of just a saying, I guess they had around it. So it gives life because it has the all the necessities of life. And then it allows commerce and uh, different things to kind of flourish outside of just being able to sustain somebody from a day-to-day perspective. Yeah, no, I think that's a great explanation of it. And I, I like that the Nile gives life idea, uh, because I think that's something that we kind of, um, like nowadays in society, we don't really look at it that way. Like the the environment and, and the nature, the natural resources that we use are the reason we're able to do whatever we can today. Um, and that's something that older civilizations definitely picked up on that we have forgotten over time. Um, but no, I, I think that you're absolutely right. That that's kind of the, the foundational reason as to why they um, they saw that as such a beneficial area is because like you said, it's just very dry. You need water to grow crops. It, you know, It's not a, a difficult connection to make that you should probably build your civilization near water if you want to grow crops. Um, but no, I, th- I think that's awesome. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to give you a little bit of history lesson in terms of agricultural development throughout societies. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I, I've touched on this very briefly in previous episodes, but I, I want to go into a bit more in depth today because I've since learned a few more things about this, uh, about this whole timeline because of a new series that I'm doing on my show right now, uh, which if you're, if you go on my YouTube, then, then you'd see I'm doing a, a Minecraft playthrough where I uh, explain the evolution of agriculture throughout society as I build societies along with the crop evolution in the game. Um, but anyways, the the evolution of agriculture over time has been very exponential. So it started off extremely slowly and now it's, it's evolving so fast. We almost can't keep up with it. Uh, so there have been three, uh, revolutions of agriculture recognized throughout history, but in, in my opinion, there's about five of them. Uh, I'm going to go into that in just a second, but the origins of agriculture date back about 12,000 years. That's, that's the earliest point in which we've been able to recognize, uh, modern or modern, uh, practices of agriculture being used. Um, and it was way, way back. And it's kind of, it's not clear where it started. It seems to be that several different areas all started producing food the same way at the same time. So somewhere around 12,000 years ago, you had a bunch of different nomadic tribes all on different continents that all started farming around the same time, almost coincidentally to a point where it's a little weird. Um, but that this was called the Neolithic Revolution. So we evolved from the uh, kind of hunter and gatherer uh, mentality and lifestyle to more of a uh, sedentary farming, um, you know, civilization uh, setup. We we were no longer reliant on just going out and finding our food. Now we can domesticate it and grow it ourselves. Uh, and so that that Neolithic revolution, it was 12,000 years ago, but it lasted for a solid amount of time. I mean, just to give you a timeline, that was the first revolution of agriculture. That was the invention of agriculture. Uh, we didn't have another revolution, another big major change in agriculture until the 1500s. Uh, and so for that entire gap of time, we had a solid, uh, there was a lot of evolution in agriculture, but there was not much uh, revolutionary change. 
And so what that basically means is our technology and our understanding and our usage of the land for agricultural production did not change very dramatically because that entire Neolithic revolution consisted of a few things, domestication of animals, domestication of crops, and the establishment of very basic agricultural tools. I'm talking like hoes and pitchforks and like just the kind of stuff you you may see like in like like we mentioned earlier the the roman empire you know the, the kinds of the kinds of tools that they may have used in their uh farming operations were very similar to the kinds of tools that the earliest civilizations used in their farming operations uh, like irrigation technology and different watering systems evolved over time but again nowhere near the level of evolution that would be required for us to be considering it a like a new age of agriculture um so yeah, so that was kind of the big thing. Um, it basically started off as like this idea of if we can just stay in one place and farm, we don't have to worry about survival anymore. We can kind of just do other things. And that led to huge evolutions of different types of societies. I mean, they figured out very quickly, whoever controls the food controls the public. And so they, uh, like, like you kind of mentioned earlier or alluded to earlier, leaders figured out pretty early on that if they keep their people happy then they can they can get a, they not get away with a lot more but they they can be a more productive leader because they have what they need from their people to to get their you know to get their way and so a lot of the leaders of these tribes or of these of these uh new colonies have have prioritized agriculture throughout history because they saw that as a necessary means to maintaining their positions. Um, that's why a lot of the the greatest kings, a lot of the greatest rulers, a lot of the greatest emperors uh, prioritized agriculture in their civilizations. And the second they took their eye off the farms, things just fell apart. Um, actually, I, I'm, I know you can give me a lot more context on this than I can provide, but I know that one of the reasons they say that the Roman Empire fell was because of their economic situation that was declining, and part of that was because they started to neglect their agricultural practices. You're muted, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, I'm bouncing around with the two mutes here. Yeah, but anyways, on the on the Roman Empire, like they were, um, the, the reason they declined, yeah, there's a million reasons for that, but it, it, they were always kind of teetering on the edge of just agricultural collapse at all times and so you mix in um mass immigration coming from the north you mix in corruption from within the empire you mix in um various small civil wars kind of going on and then you throw in a crop failure and probably some sort of disease as well and it's just kind of a perfect storm but if you yeah, you look through it like it's oh, it's one of those key pillars and yeah maybe you can survive if that pillar goes down for a little bit, but if it stays down for too long, disease is going to start to happen because people just aren't eating and aren't as healthy. Civil war will start and then everything kind of collapses. Where I think with the other ones, you can kind of come back a little bit easier. If there's a civil war, you win a battle, everyone's still eating. It's still okay. So yeah, it's a bit of a kind of a bit of a mix, but yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's a key, key pillar to essentially sustaining a, a society. Yeah, definitely. And I think that we're, we're going to get into the American Civil War a little bit later because that has to do with a little bit of what you were talking about, where the battle was, was actually going pretty well until we started messing with food supplies. Uh, but we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself if I start going down that route. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that, as, as you mentioned, if, if you don't have that level of uh, food security, then it's very difficult to get anything else done. Like you, you can handle external threats. You may be able to handle some changes in power. Uh, you can, you may be even, you may even be able to handle some economic and, and uh, integrity issues. But the second you take away their ability to eat, now things start going down the drain very, very quickly. And like you mentioned, 
the Roman Empire already had kind of a weak hold on their food production. So the more attention they diverted from it, the weaker and weaker that hold got. And that just slipped right out from under them. And I'm not going to say that that was the cause of everything. So like you mentioned, there was a lot of different dominoes that fell for that to happen. But it is cited as one of those things that caused a lot of a lot of those issues to happen. Um, and there are many, many other issues throughout history that also fell into that same issue. I mean, like we saw like the uh, the potato famine in Ireland was, I mean, devastating for their entire country. They almost like were entirely, enti- entirely rely on other countries just to be able to survive. Um, we're actually seeing similar things happen today. Fun fact, uh, Sweden is actually struggling a lot right now because they uh, banned a lot of technology that allows their food to increase in yields. And so now they're almost entirely reliant on imports, which makes them very uh, structurally uh, I'm not going to say weak, that's a harsh term, but a little bit more structurally insecure than they typically would prefer to be, uh, because now they're relying on other countries for their food imports. Um, and so that's something that's just, you know, it's worth considering that when you're looking at a strong society, you probably want to make sure you check all the boxes of the basic human needs, first of all, make sure they have food, make sure they have water, make sure those things are safe and make sure that they are taken care of before you try to go and do anything else extreme, like having a powerful military or or powerful technology or powerful resources that you can't back. Um, but yeah, so that's the first revolution of agriculture. Our next evolution, revolution, our next uh, era of agriculture that came in was in uh, it was somewhere Somewhere between the 1500s and the 1850s, it's not super clear as to when it started, but it started, uh, and this is where it gets kind of contradictory, it started around the same time as the Industrial Revolution. That's where it started to ramp up, even though the earliest signs of it were seen all the way back in the Renaissance. And so it's it's kind of unclear where the start was, but it's probably closer to that 1800 mark. Um, and that is the kind of industrial agricultural revolution. That was a huge increase in the amount of technology we were using, the mechanization of agriculture. And this was one of the first times that agriculture was truly commercialized. Uh, so before, I mean, agriculture was part of the economy for a lot of civilizations, but this was the first time that agriculture was seen as kind of its own industry. It took care of its own problems and it was a uh, it was basically a job. You know, people weren't relying on their own farms to feed themselves. They were using their farms to feed others. And that's kind of where the agricultural industry started to take a shift more towards a uh, a commercialized operation as opposed to just a standard of living. Um, you talked a little bit about how you weren't sure where that divide happened, where people started to move away from agriculture and, and they started to lose that connection. It's heavily theorized that this is where it happened around the time of the industrial and around the time of the industrial revolution, when everyone was moving into the cities and getting jobs at factories and they were working on a lot more of the urban type jobs. There's a pretty heavy divide among the rural and urban communities at this point in history, and it's kind of agreed upon that that's probably where the biggest disconnect between those uh, in and out of agriculture had. And that's partially it. That is the area that is the era of history that is mostly blamed when it comes to discrepancies in agricultural literacy. Um, does that does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think we look at any time in history that always the classic is people were moving from the farms into the cities, and it even goes all the way up to like the 1960s. If you look at what happens in China, right? Mao's great leap forward. Let's bring a bunch of people into the city really quickly. And then they did it too fast. Then you have a famine because there's not enough people to make food. So yeah, it's definitely something that I think yeah, you saw more kind of in the Western world, like maybe like England would kind of be probably like you think of like 1800s London would kind of be kind of the first really mass migration of people into cities in, in that industrial revolution kind of world. But yeah, it, and it would even argue it's still going on today in some countries as, you know, 
places start to industrialize more. But yeah, I think that totally makes sense from a, a starting point perspective. Yeah. No, exactly. And and even I mean, I mean you mentioned it's still happening today in other countries. It's it's still kind of happening in our country to a certain degree. Uh less than two percent of people are actively involved in food production today, and that number is shrinking every day. So we're we're trying to get more people in employed in agriculture, but a lot of them are moving more towards those urban jobs. And it's not that that's necessarily as much of an issue as it used to be, because we've gotten really good at producing food to a point where we don't need to really worry about it as much as we were. But it's still a concern that we're not having enough people replacing those producing the food uh, to continue that that production scale. Um, I mean, plus it caused other issues like the Dust Bowl. I mean, that was shortly after the Industrial Revolution, I, I believe. Right. What, what year was the Dust Bowl? There's uh, video of people talking about it when they're really old. So I'm trying to think like, <laughs> when did television come in? So I would say probably early 20th century, if I had to guess. Mm. Uh, let me, let me, let me, I'm looking this up live right now. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So the Dust Bowl was in the 1930s, 1930, okay. 1936. So yeah, this was after the Industrial Revolution. I thought so. I should know that because, you know, it's pretty prominent part of agricultural history but yeah. anyways i my brain is a little bit scattered um but yeah so it even uh is believed to be the cause of things like the dust bowl you know a lot of these uh environmental insecurities that we've had are because of this extreme mechanization extreme commercialization of agriculture uh very quickly and the big move to urban uh, settlements cause a lot of the farmers to kind of pick up their slack a little bit more and do even more work than they were already doing, uh, which caused even more environmental damage, even more uh, industry insecurity, because they were now having to do practices to um, basically make up for the lack of manpower and increase the production rates. And that just caused a lot of complications. We, we did not have the technology we have today to be able to do those things safely and you know securely without causing too much damage to the environment uh, or anything else around them. So Another one of those, you know, ramifications to taking your eye off the farm kind of deal. Uh, it's not to say the industrial revolution was a bad thing by any means. I mean, we have a lot, we have a lot to thank because of the industrial revolution, but there were some long-term ramifications such as that, you know, level of impact from, from the, uh, the, not to say disregard of agriculture, but the, the diversion away from it, um, so yeah, and then the third revolution, the final revolution, according to history, but not my uh, believed final re revolution of agriculture, is known as the Green Revolution. This was in the 1950s and 60s. This was a little bit after the Dust Bowl. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Dust Bowl partially inspired this revolution. But this is known as the uh, the chemical revolution. So this is where the introduction of like genetic modification came in. So your GMOs, uh, this is where uh, chemical and synthetic uh, fertilizers and pesticides started to be introduced. This is where a lot of your like heavy substance use in agriculture became a, a more common theme uh, because they felt the need to do that to be able to increase yields. It's a very scientific heavy revolution. And that's why it's considered the modern revolution is just because we're still using all this same stuff. Uh, but it's not really a... I'm not going to say that we're not in the green revolution anymore, but we've kind of evolved past that technology now. Like we still use it. Yes, but we've, we've adapted other methods to be able to supplement it. So it's not entirely reliant on those types of technologies. That's why I argue that we're actually in a crosshairs between a fourth and fifth revolutions that I'll talk about very briefly here in a minute. Uh, but yeah, so the green, the green revolution is, is by far the most controversial of the agricultural revolutions uh, because it caused the most public uh, perception issues with agriculture because people don't typically trust uh, GMOs and chemical pesticides and fertilizers and all of those things. Partially out of a fear of not knowing what they are, but also partially because there was 
uh, a little bit of abuse of them back in the day when they were first being used and that kind of left a, a bad taste in people's mouth. Um, yeah, you, yeah, you have one like, chance at a first impression, right? And if it doesn't go well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. no, I hear you. Yeah. And I think like, so like I'm an engineer, so I kind of like look into a lot of this stuff just out of interest and, mm-hmm. you know, people I talk to about GMOs, it's like, I want no GMOs, in any of my foods. And then I'll be like, well, have you ever had a banana? And I'll be like, yes. And I'll be like, well, what? you know, there's no seeds in a banana. So that's <laughs> technically genetically modified, but yeah, it's just this whole mentality of, you know, some mad scientists pouring two beakers together and creating this Frankenstein of a, of a food where it's really just minor modifications. But yeah, I think you're right. Like even seeing that plus nowadays too, with all the technology around, you know, like I've seen things where like drones are flying over far, uh, fields, taking pictures, and there's machine vision technology working on top of that to determine like, you know, more, more things, I guess, farming related in terms of put more fertilizer here, or you need more water there, got to make, put more attention to that. It's, it's really, really crazy. And again, though, I think it's that barrier to entry starts to become higher and higher and higher for a lot of farmers. And I think I'd be curious to get your thoughts on like, is that kind of a direction that, you know, a lot of farmers are going to continue to struggle with, or is like the technology getting so good and so cheap that now it's actually helping some of those farmers who are maybe struggling kind of get back in the game. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I'm glad that you're going that direction because that's actually the next direction I was going to. Uh, so the kind of what I'm considering the fourth revolution of agriculture, my theorized fourth revolution is the automation revolution. Uh, so it's exactly what you're talking about. The integration of drone technology, of precision agriculture, of these new advanced forms of technology that allow us to be more precise, more accurate, increase our yields with using less resources, uh, all of those things you described. Uh, and to answer your question, it's farmers are going that route to a degree, but it's a slow adoption. Uh, so it's, it's by no means are they like, you know, tomorrow they're all going to be using drones. Uh, we're starting to see it more and more. It's kind of, it's kind of following a similar path as the revolutions themselves. It's, you know, it's a bit more exponential. So as, as more farmers adopt it, more of their neighbors see them using it and want to try it out themselves. And so it's, it's becoming a bit more popular. Uh, but the, like you mentioned, the price and the lack of, research supporting this technology is making it very difficult to adopt. Um, it has in more recent years become more uh, accepted as something that they want to adopt, but it's still getting to the point where it's affordable and accessible to them. But what they are doing to help with that is some of these companies that are producing this technology are actually non-agricultural companies. They're coming from Silicon Valley. They're coming from Texas. They're coming from different areas where they're very prominent in technology, but they don't understand agriculture at all. And so those companies realize the, uh, they're starting to realize like the the difficulty with demand because they they know the farmers could benefit from the technology, but the farmers don't want the technology. And so what they're doing is they're creating partnerships with these farms to allow them to use the technology for extremely cheap or even free for the purposes of demonstrating that the technology works. And that way more people will start to adopt it. Um, and so it's, it's becoming more popular. Uh, it's becoming more affordable because of initiatives like that. Um, and it's, I think over time going to become more affordable, but like farmers today, the drones that they're using are not the like state of the art drones. Those drones are available, but only like the expensive high dollar, extremely high powered farms are able to use them. Your average, you know, small uh, farm around the corner is probably not going to have a drone just because for one, they probably don't need it for their size of an operation. And for two, if they can afford it, they're probably going to invest that money into something else for their farm. Uh, but I, I hope that they adopt more of that technology soon. I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I've had several episodes talking about autonomous tractors and self, you know, self-flying drones and all the precision technology that goes into it, the robots that can pick fruit and can milk cows and do all, and do all the things. 
I think it's super cool. I think that they should adopt it. I also recognize it's very expensive and very difficult and it's a high risk for the, for their businesses. So will they adopt it anytime soon? It's hard to say. I think that there's a higher chance that they will as time goes on, but I don't think it's going to be like an overnight deal. I think it's going to take some time for them to learn to trust that kind of stuff, especially as younger generations start to come in. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially with you know farming being a I guess it looks like a family operation a lot of times where it's, you know, grandfathers, fathers, sons, you know, daughters, mothers, grandmothers, all that kind of stuff coming together. And yeah, you have like, I could see like yeah, a lot of the younger generation trying to get the older generation to adopt some of this technology. And there's always friction there with in any industry that you work with. But yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting time just was things are just getting so much more cheaper from a technological perspective, but you're right that, you know, coming from Silicon Valley to maybe the Midwest of Canada or even to, United States trying to to kind of bridge that gap will be really, really challenging. So yeah, it'll be an interesting future. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that kind of brings me into my my next and final revolution here for agriculture, uh, which is the regenerative revolution. So this, I believe, is actually working in tandem with the automation or technology revolution. Uh, and I believe that both of these started within the past probably 10 to 20 years. Like this is a very, very recent discovery. And I think this is why it hasn't been documented yet, because we have two separate revolutions occurring simultaneously. And at times they cross paths and other times they don't. But essentially, the regenerative revolution is kind of the alternative to what you propose with the technology. It allows farmers to increase their yields and to mitigate their damage while maintaining all of their you know, production practices, but they don't have to incorporate technology. They can do it with just their practices. Uh, so some of these regenerative methods include like, like minimal tilling. So they're not tilling the ground quite as much, um, a lot more crop rotation or even the lack of crop rotation, instead of you know pulling out crops and putting in new ones, they're um, plowing those crops into the ground and allowing the soil to absorb those nutrients, and then they're planting crops on top of them. Uh, and so the the idea of regenerative agriculture actually goes all the way back to the first civilization to ever start farming, and it goes back to that example we talked about with the Nile. Uh, it's all about preservation of the soil health. So the first civilization i mentioned i meant to mention this and i forgot to uh, the first civilization when they established their first farms realized that the reason why it's best to build their farms near water is partially because yes they need water for their crops but also the soil that is near water is much higher in nutrients than any other soil around uh, so I live in the Central Valley of California. I'm at the bottom of the biggest bowl in California and my hometown used to be the bottom of a giant lake that's why our soil is so much more fertile than almost any soil in the Midwest or almost any soil in the rest of the world. Uh, and that's because whenever water sits on top of soil, it, it introduces a ton of uh, microbiology. So like you have all these uh, microorganisms and uh, like all these different you know bugs and things that are getting incorporated into the water. And that water then seeps it all into the soil and soil is made up of microorganisms. And so when you have all these interconnected networks of, of microbiology, it creates a healthy biome, a, a microbiome in the soil to maintain a, like a, a strong nutrient bank for any crops that are grown in it. Um, and so having crops grown near water sources is actually even better than in supplementing the water yourself, because typically that water is going to enrich the soil as it as it flows from a natural source. Um, and so regenerative agriculture focuses on that idea of how do we make the soil as healthy as possible instead of how do we increase our yields as much as, as, much as possible? Because it's based off the idea if we take care of the soil, the soil will take care of us. Uh, and so that's kind of a 
it's a very old idea. Actually, one of the first pieces of written text ever discovered was depicting the uh, relationship between civilization and soil. And it showed that humans like almost praise soil as if it, as if it were some kind of deity. Uh, and so it kind of brings back that idea of we used to love the soil. We kind of forgot that. So let's go back to loving the soil. And if we combine that with our new technology, maybe we can make stuff even better by having increased yields, by having decreased uh, inputs, and we can use the technology we have without having to use all the expensive, fancy stuff because we're not trying to do everything we were trying to do before because we're actually lowering some of our inputs with our regenerative methods. So I know that was a lot that I just threw out there, but that that kind of wraps up the the final revolution. And that's that's like the full circle model of where agriculture has come from and where it's going now and where I think the technology is going to play into all that. Now, not all farmers are adopting these things. This is, like I said, it's a very new idea. It's a very new practice. It's within the past 20 years or so. So not very many farmers are getting on board, but it's it's catching wind fast enough that it's making enough of a difference to demonstrate some results. Uh, and so if those results continue to be positive, then we may see more and more farmers dipping their toes in the regener regenerative stuff. We may see more and more farmers start to say, you know what, if I can use some of the technology and make it affordable, then maybe I'll use the technology and some of these new methods to make my stuff more affordable and still efficient. Because um, now we're looking at longevity of farms. We're not just looking at production. You know, how we're not looking at how much can this farm make, it's how long can it make it. That's the that's the new priority. And I think that's probably, in my opinion, a better direction, but that's just kind of my you know, preservation of agriculture mind talking. Um, but yeah, I, I have a couple of things to get to, but before I do, I wanted to give you a chance to jump in there on anything you wanted to comment on. Yeah. I just kind of like the last piece you mentioned just on making sure the land kind of works longer than just, you know, we get as much out of it as we can and we move on. I think especially with populations increasing and we're trying to, you know, farming space is always getting smaller and smaller. Like even in um, Ontario right now, there's a big controversy where the government wants to open up an area that we call the green belt, which was designated as farming and, um, you know, more natural land that was just going to be reserved for that. And they want to start building houses in there to kind of help with the increasing population. And thankfully kind of the, there's been a lot of backlash against, you know, we, we like having farms down the street from us because it gives us locally grown things that, you know, everybody's come to enjoy, but if that land goes away and, you know, there's all these other things that come across. So yeah, just kind of something that touches a little bit, um, kind of for home for me. So yeah, I kind of like that you brought that in. And I will say, I think you did a pretty good job of kind of going regenerative kind of methods and bringing it all the way back to the beginning. And I was like, how is he going to bring history into this? And, and you found a way, which I thought was pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, so well done. Thank you. Um, I am studying to be a teacher after all. So I've, I've kind of learned how to make things connect that way. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that, and that's, that's one of the things that makes him so exciting about me about it. That's what th that's one of the things that makes it so exciting to me is that all of this stuff kind of connects to each other and the the nature of agriculture is cyclical. You know, so over time, agriculture, agriculture doesn't change. We change, you know, we kind of change in our perspectives of it and in, in our relationship with excuse me, in our relationship with it. But ultimately, we always come back to where we came from. And so uh, over time, we realize, you know what? The first people thought the soil was great. So how about we start thinking about that that way too? And it turns out that was a really good approach. And, you know, we started to realize, well, maybe if we stop doing all of this stuff and try the things that the earliest people tried, maybe that'll work again. And it did for some cases. In some cases it didn't, you know, because we have like hundreds of thousands times more people now than they did back then. And so we have to get a little bit more creative than they had to. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of kind of... Um, 
I, I like to call it poetic justice in, in, in history and in agriculture and in all of life. There's so much that's like that. It's kind of funny how that worked out. Cause that's how, that's exactly how it worked out for these people who tried this so long ago. And we see that in, in both our practices, but also in terms of, you know, conflicts and relationships in societies, as I'm sure you've studied through history, there have been things that are like, you tried that and you knew that somebody else tried that and it didn't work out for them yet. You thought it would work out for you. Why are you stupid? And so it's just one of those things that's like, I mean, we talked, we talked before about people using agriculture as kind of like a weapon against the people. And that's a very common recurring theme throughout history in almost every society that has failed. It's, it's that, you know, either this is kind of my observation you can you can completely disagree with me here as someone who's who's probably looked into this a little bit more than i have but i think that civilizations typically have two paths that they follow either they get really really big and then they crumble to the floor because they weren't paying attention to the things they needed to pay attention to or they get eaten by another civilization or Eaton's a strong word. They usually evolve into a different civilization. So like you don't see civilizations die because they just stop existing. It's usually because they did something wrong or because they felt the need to evolve. And so they changed into something else. Um, it's I mean, that's kind of how life works, right? You either you either die to the things that stop you or you find a way to evolve around them. Um, and so like for a lot of civilizations, I think that they have evolved to uh, accommodate for some of those issues that they face because they found new and better ways to grow food, to store water, to maintain safety against natural disasters, to have better political systems that allow them to to remain uh, all you know uh, taken care of and safe. And in other cases, you have stuff like we mentioned earlier, the Roman Empire, who just got really big and really powerful, and then they completely neglected all the things that made them big and powerful, and they fell apart. Um, but that's just my observation. I don't know if you feel any differently about that. Yeah, I think it's a case by case basis, but I think that the adaptation part is is the key thing. Like if you look at something um, like Britain, I think is a good example. They were the first to kind of really move towards more of a somewhat democratic society where you had at least some power to the people. You had private businesses being able to open up different um, types of industries that weren't just always controlled through the government. And obviously had a lot of issues along the way that had, you know, allowed them to really expand out and, you know, build out their whole colonial empire and then have the ability to shrink it back down when, you know, after World War II. But yeah, it's like even something too, I think about of like adapting is like, we look at farming and slavery, I think are two big things that we've come across a lot and kind of what we've been studying and Britain being one of the first countries to ban it outright. You could kind of start to see almost like you don't have this cheap labor anymore that or essentially free labor that you can go to, you're going to have to start innovating and start to be better at your practices. And I think we start to see that of with countries and civilizations that maybe do something that's a bit more progressive and maybe hurts them in the short term, but really works for them in the long term. And so I think like part of the reason we look at the civil war, right? The North is so, so wealthy. It's because they didn't have slavery. Part of the reason also their climate doesn't really work for growing sugar cane and things like that. But you also have to think like they don't have access to the same type of labor that the South does. So they can start looking at other ways to innovate in other industries that are going to come up where the South a little bit more stuck in their ways and eventually crumble and, and die or kind of get amalgamated back into the union. So yeah, it's a very interesting kind of um, observation, I think, because 
yeah, evolve or die really at the end of the day it works for companies, works for civilizations. And sometimes even for people, right? If you don't evolve to the new world, you know, your old job may not exist anymore. And in the farming context, right? If you don't evolve to some of the new technologies or some of the new methods, you, you might get left behind. Yeah, no, that's really well said. And that's something that I think is, it, it's it's much truer than people tend to realize. I mean, even like you mentioned in the farming perspective, that is something that we deal with a lot is people are concerned about increasing the technology usage may decrease the number of jobs that are available, which there's a few different reasons why that's not the case. First of all, like you said, it's very easy to adopt these new jobs as potential careers. Um, and second of all, we're having a really hard time filling the jobs that we need for the farming industry anyways. So why not just use technology to fill those roles anyways? Uh, but beside the point, uh, going back to an example that you brought up that I wanted to highlight again, which was the American Civil War. Uh, I talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, and, you know, you kind of just talked about it there. That's that same idea of like, you know, the, like the the South had, had the better farming practices, but the Union had the better strategy in some cases. And it, it just kind of worked out that the South just did not win that one. Uh, one of the primary reasons why the South um, went down as fast as they did is because the Union uh, started to cut off their access to their farms. They said, you know what? We realize the South, their strength is agriculture. Maybe we should cut off that leg. And so they burned farms. They cut the, they cut off their access to the ports. So that way they couldn't export or import anything. They destroyed a lot of their agricultural operations. They freed livestock. They stole livestock. Um, not to say that they play dirty by any means, cause that's, you know, it's, it's war, those kinds of things happen, but it's, it's worth mentioning that the South that was actually having a pretty fair fighting chance until all of their agriculture was gone. And then all of a sudden their economy just fell apart and they had nothing, they had no leg to stand on. Um, we've seen that happen in, in a lot of different cases. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that it kind of worked out in the reverse with the, with the South, cause typically in a lot of civilizations, you see the opposite happening. If a powerful entity cuts off food from from a powerful group, then that group usually just gets stronger. You know, um, I guess that's not necessarily true. It depends on the situation. Uh, the the reason I I bring that example in is because it reminds me of other examples. Like you have like Shays Rebellion, which was a whole thing where like the government wasn't being fair to the farmers, and so the farmers just took the battle to straight to the government um, or the French Revolution. I mean, it was literally known as you know the bread war because people uh, could not get bread. And so they decided to just cut off all their leaders heads. And so it's like people get very defensive over food. And if you take away their ability to get food, they're, you know, rightfully so going to take matters into their own hands. Um, I mean, like we've seen that just in the past few well, past couple of years with the Dutch, uh, with the Dutch farmer revolution or the Dutch farmer revolt, um, you know, in, in, uh, in a lot of like the Dutch co uh, countries or a lot of Dutch countries, um, in, in though, in though, in that area of the world, there, there have been multiple governments that have been, um, very hard on their farmers and very hard on their, uh, people. And so the Dutch have revolted against that and have not allowed them to in inflict some of the regulations that they've been trying to inflict, have not allowed them to limit some of their practices of farming. And so it's just one of those things that we've seen throughout history of if you try to cut off somebody's ability to farm or get food or have access to, you know, uh, available and affordable and safe food, they're going to take matters in their own hands and they're probably not going to like you very much. Um, there's this kind of idea that food is transformative and that if you're in a bad mood, you should probably eat because it'll make you feel better uh, because we have this relationship with food that food just makes us feel better about things. And that if you're, uh, you know, if, if food just has a way of making us um, like kind of calm down and enjoy our lives. And so if you take that away from people, 
you kind of have to expect them to not be very happy with, with you for it. Um, I, I'm sure you have plenty more examples than I can come up with. Those are the, those are the ones that just came to mind for me, but um, it just seems to, it seems to be the case for me that if you cut off somebody's food supply, either a, they're going to die because they're not going to have a way of, of fighting back or B, if they can get to you fast enough, they will kill you before you can let them die from hunger. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it in a nutshell, I think, I think the one thing is it's, I think it's very rare that you see like a full cutoff of food supplies. What I find is it's like disruptions in certain ways. So you'll see things like, um, and I'll go back to the Roman empire. The emperor's biggest thing was they had to have grain subsidies. And if they didn't have those, um, to kind of control and they'd also have like strategic stores of grain as well so when the price went up because there was a crop failure in sicily or you know a shipment from egypt got lost at sea the price would spike and these are peasants who don't have much money people don't have savings like they do today they can't just figure out a way to do it people literally starve and, and riot like you were mentioning so there's that part of it where the government's very much in control and then you have the example you brought up like the french revolution where the government just is so out to lunch doesn't have any idea what's going on outside and they're throwing these lavish parties and eating like kings and queens but people don't have any food to eat and then you know one thing leads to another and some royalty is losing their heads so yeah it's a, it's a big kind of mix and it's just like i think it goes down to like kind of that whole like supply chain logistics side of things of how you're moving the food versus maybe necessarily just like a full cutoff of if you can poke holes in parts of that logistical network it can start to cascade and cause a lot of problems. So yeah, again, we see it throughout history. And I think like you're saying, like even in the civil war, like cutting off food supplies and stuff, it's, it's a fantastic strategy because uh, you know, if you're not getting food to the front line, your soldiers aren't eating, it's, they're not going to perform very well. And it really, I think it was um, Dan Carlin talks about this. Who's like the you know number one, when it comes to history podcasting, he says a lot of times when it comes to war, the country or the, the civilization that wins it's not the one with the best generals, it's not the one with the best troops. It's the one with the biggest industrial power behind them. And that could be the, and a big chunk of that is their farming capabilities, their ability to grow food and get it to the front lines, get it to their people. And the countries that don't have that, obviously money is a big piece as well. If you have a lot of money, you can buy a lot of things. Um, but yeah, if you're not able to build out that industrial might, you're not gonna be able to wage war really well. And I think when you talked about the civil war, the perfect example was I think at one point, I can't remember the number, but when I read it, my head exploded. It was like the amount of cotton in the world that was coming out of the Southern United States was astronomical, like, you know, double digit percents, something like that. And, um, you know, you cut their ability to sell that cotton to Europe, money goes, dries up, you, you kind of disrupt the farming industry that kind of goes away and there's really nothing else to fall back on. And so this industrial might of the union is just pumping out weapons and troops and money and all of these sort of things where the south just doesn't have that ability and it was just you know you have these big battles and you know people think hey this war was really really close and you never know you win a, a battle or two and you're able to cut off a strategic supply chain in the north and things could have been different but really as soon as you cut off kind of that industrial might it's kind of years and decades to, to finish off an enemy but sometimes it happens really quickly yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think we're starting to get close to the end of our, our time here. So I want to 
give things to to you. I, I want to bring things back to your side of of the equation a little bit and talk about some leaders in, throughout history because I think that there's a lot of leaders throughout history that have uh, significant ties to agriculture. Um, and so I want to give you the chance to share uh, some of your favorite leaders from history and these. When I say favor, it doesn't have to be a good person. It's just yes. somebody that you enjoy, which I'm sure you know, but I'm saying for for them, um, somebody that you enjoy learning about uh, and they're tied to agriculture. I'll share a couple of mine as well. Um, and just and you don't have to share like their history with agriculture, but just somebody that you admire from history that maybe has a tie to agriculture and, and share a little bit about why you like them. Yeah, I think one person that really stuck out to me was when we did uh, Joan of Arc. Um, it was an interesting one because you hear so much of Joan of Arc. She's you know very popular in the the Christian community as well, and just you you hear so much about it. And sometimes when you someone's so famous, you kind of just brush it off, be like, yeah, they're probably overrated in some way. And then we started to look into it and we're like, actually, she's underrated if anything. But she was the classic, grew up on a farm like every peasant back in the day. And back in medieval France, if you grew up on a farm and you weren't part of the nobility and you weren't part of the clergy, which is like the church, there was no future for you outside of maybe a military career, especially being a woman. There was definitely no chance she was doing anything, but she just had this charisma where she was able to, you know, learn whatever she learned kind of through her life, growing up on a farm, learning from her parents, and then being able to pull herself out of a world where she didn't really know much else to within a few years, leading French armies against the British and, and winning battles and then to a point where she's helping um, the king of France regain the throne. Like, it's just a, a crazy piece of this this modest farmer who's just helping her parents out on a day-to-day, this kid who then flips within a couple of years and just becomes, you know, one of the greatest military leaders um, that we've seen and, you know, dies so young, kind of, you know, losing it a little bit kind of, I think, near the end. But yeah, she's definitely someone I admire. And then I think the other one's got to be Harry Truman. I think Harry Truman, he comes on, he doesn't hit his stride until he's much older in life. So he grew up on a farm, spent a lot of time farming. I think he, when he went to war in World War I, came back, continued farming, tried to open a business. I think the farm failed, another business failed, and just like failure on top of failure and just kind of got lucky, knew someone who he was out, went to war with, who was in politics, you know, tried to work through that. And it just something clicked. He just, he had the ability to lead um, and the ability to, I think with him was just with, the ability to like get rid of waste was one of the things that he was really good at. They put him, when he got into the federal government as a senator, his first job during World War II was get rid of the waste and the corruption that's happening. And I like to think back of, you know, a farmer's life. Waste is, you know, you have limited resources and you got to do so much with it. And so he's trying to go through all of these different things to to get to a point where he's able to, you know, move outside of maybe what he's doing on a farm, but take some of those lessons, I like to think. Um, but yeah, it's kind of that humble beginning where he's tried and he's failed, but he kind of keeps getting back up and he keeps going and then eventually becomes president of the United States and a pretty good president to 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 add to that. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting life. And I think a lot of times you see farmers being just such an essential piece to life, but sometimes they move outside of that space into a brand new world and can accomplish things that you know, our next level. And, you know, they would have never dreamed of. Yeah, no, I, I really like those. I actually just recently started doing some more research on Joan of Arc just because I was curious and I, I learned some pretty interesting things about her. So I think that's, I, I agree with you. That's a really cool one to get to look into. Uh, but yeah, I think those are, go- I, I think those are both really good answers. Uh, I like the the reason you gave for both of them. Uh, that That's, that's really cool. Um, I think if I were to choose two or three that I, I really admire, I'm, 
very basic and I chose all American presidents uh, because I am very aware of world leaders, but I haven't done enough research in terms of who had what kinds of agricultural backgrounds at the moment. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, wave my my naive flag here and, and just say that, you know, there were some pretty cool American presidents that had some backgrounds to ag, and I'm going to stick to those. Uh, so my my first one is Thomas Jefferson, uh, who's kind of the easy one. His whole mentality as a president and as a as a founding father was that we sh- we in the United States should have a an economy that relies almost entirely on agriculture, that uh, we should avoid uh, exports and imports, and that we should focus on commercialization within our country, um, that every, or not commercialization, sorry, that we should focus on um, kind of like the evolution of agricultural practices within our own country, uh, and that every family should have a farm, that every person should be uh, like their own farmer. Um, he was very much a fan of like the homesteading lifestyle, uh, he was very much an advocate for, you know, strong ag- agricultural markets and all these sorts of things. I'm not saying that that is something that I advocate for, but I appreciate his dedication to the industry, you know, his, what he was able to do for agriculture and also just his general mentality as a, as a president was something that I thought was really interesting. His take was very different than a lot of the other founding fathers at the time. Plus, I mean, the dude got to, you know, help write the declaration of independence, which was pretty cool. Uh, and so he, he's one of my favorites for that also because of his famous quote that is, I believe still my old Twitter bio, uh, which is, uh, agriculture is our wisest pursuit because it will in the end contribute most to real wealth, good morals, and happiness. And that's one of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, especially because I am uh, studying to be an agriculture teacher. So that's something that I firmly believe in is that, you know, agriculture is something to, it's worth learning about because it does provide some good work ethic and some good morals and some strong uh, happiness in, in life and all those sorts of things. And I think that he stood for a lot of those things, despite some of the other things that he did, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, and then you have a couple of the others. I mean, obviously the classic George Washington, who had one of the most impressive farms of any of the founding fathers. Um I got to actually visit his farm, which was really cool, all the way in Mount Vernon in in, uh, in Virginia. And so that was really cool to get to watch uh, how they preserve that historical farm. Uh, I love historical farms. They're always really cool to me to see how, you know, how big farms were back in the day versus how big they are now. Um, so George Washington, obviously, you know, first president had some pretty major implications in terms of the the generation of of American Revolution and the uh, creation of the, of the United States as a country. Um, and then probably my other big one is Abraham Lincoln, who is, uh, I'm not sure it needs to be said what he did for agriculture, but he he definitely had some major influences. Um, I mean, obviously he helped free the slaves, which uh, did have a massive impact on the agricultural industry, but I think for the better, because obviously for one, we got slaves out of there, which was great. But also it, it inspired a huge increase in um, agricultural technology to be developed. It, it could even be said that part of the reason why that second revolution of agriculture was because we didn't have slave labor to help with those yield production. So we needed to create more advanced technology to make up for that lack of labor. Um, so I think that he did a great thing for the industry by doing that. Um, obviously, there's the moral reasons why he did a great thing. But if, if we're talking just about agriculture, Abraham Lincoln did some uh, phenomenal work for the industry. He was a, a phenomenal farmer himself. Um, and he was, I mean, from a very rural background, he's one of the few farmers that wasn't like a natural farmer. He's one of the few uh, presidents who wasn't like a natural politician, like world leader, you know, country, uh, like hero kind of, you know, gladiator in the battlefield kind of thing. He was just a guy, you know, he just came from a simple farming background. He was very much just like a Southern boy, just kind of like kind of awkward, kind of gangly. It wasn't super, you know, like 
conventionally like charismatic he was kind of just there but he did his job and he did it well and so i i appreciate that him for that um there are many world leaders that i admire and that i appreciate but i'm not going to speak on them because i don't know enough about them at the time to (laughs) not sound stupid on them so uh yeah but that is uh those are all the things that i wanted to talk about today uh paul i want to give you the chance to share anything else you wanted to talk about um and i'll give you a chance to plug your stuff again too in a minute if you want to do that as well yeah definitely i think i'll just kind of summarize kind of what you said i think picking american presidents i think when it comes to farming is just it's it is the easy answer but there's a reason it's an easy answer i think because it's so ingrained in in the american culture and i think you mentioned about jefferson being so you know we got to have an agricultural kind of business mindset um i think it goes back to american isolationism from the beginning of the country just understanding that they don't want anything to do with this old world and we just want to figure things out for ourselves and like we've talked about if you can grow your own food that makes that process a lot a lot easier so yeah i think it's really cool and then just it shows kind of the ideals of america and how america is able to say like look you can be a farmer and you don't have to be part of the nobility or part of the clergy to do make a name for yourself you just have to have the will of the people and i think even when we went did our episode on lincoln we talked a little bit about how he was the first to kind of use like radio and and different things to help with his political campaign and part of his campaign was I'm an everyman. I'm a farmer just like you. And I know how, how hard it is to, you know, get up at the crack of dawn and go to bed when the sun goes down. And it's it's a tough life. And I'm here to kind of fight for those things. And it made him wildly successful. So yeah, I think yeah, it's just kind of cool to see, like we say humble beginnings, but like it's just being able to kind of not forget where someone like Lincoln came from and he can kind of bring it back to everybody, which I think is is pretty awesome. So yeah, I think it's it was a good kind of bunch of picks that you had. And I think, um, you know, I learned a lot today, kind of just learned listening to you a little bit about the history of farming. And I think, yeah, we'll definitely not maybe brush over, Hey, they were a farmer and then move on to the, to the next thing. Cause I think there's a lot more there, but, uh, in terms of yeah, plugging stuff. So we, uh, have a podcast called the history in motion podcast. We release a new episode every two weeks. Um, you can find us where you find your podcasts and, uh, yeah, we're going to keep uh, pumping out episodes and maybe we'll have to look at doing a, a great leader in farming at, at some point down the line, I think is, is only fair. Awesome. Yeah, no, that'd be great. If you guys need any help with that episode, you let me know. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and if you need any help with episodes regarding public speaking, let me know on that too. I, I have studied a lot of public leader or uh, political leaders, but mostly from the public speaking perspective. I, you know, I've read a lot about Churchill and Lincoln and their, uh, actually what you talked about his, his whole, like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm very much just a common man. You know, I, I stand for all of you kind of thing. I, I love that whole aspect of his personality, but, uh, yeah. So anything you want to do regarding, you know, charisma, public speaking or agriculture, I am, I'm your guy. Um, amazing. I appreciate that. Yeah. But yeah, so make sure that, uh, for any of you listening, you go and check out Paul and his, and his co-hosts podcast. I'll put the link down in the description for that. Um, once again, it was history in motion. You got it. Cool. Yeah. I'll make sure that is linked down, down in the description so you guys can check that out. Uh, and I'll, I'll share all the links and everything on social media as well. So that way you guys can go find them and give them a listen. Cause I think it'll be a, a really fun podcast to get into. I, I am going to listen to an episode after this. Uh, my weekend has been a, a bit hectic with starting my, my new student teaching position. So that's been a little bit on my on my mind, but now I have a bit more time to catch up on your guys' episodes. So I'll be doing that, especially listening to the Abraham Lincoln one and the Joan of Arc one. Uh, but yeah, so that's all I have for you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Paul, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to get to talk to you. And I also learned a few things from you. So I, I appreciate that as well. Awesome. Yeah, the feelings mutual. Thanks so much for having me. 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, thank all of you so much for tuning in and listening. And if uh, if you would like to learn more about uh, either history or agriculture or any of those things, then go uh, check out uh, more of my episodes as well as Paul's episodes. Uh, if you want to learn more about the revolutions of agriculture, like I mentioned, you can go check out the new Minecraft series that we have going on. So you can go watch that. Uh, and I think that's all I have for you guys. So I hope to catch you guys uh, in the next episode. And don't forget, if you wait today, thank a farmer. And people say history isn't fun. Look at that. What a great episode. Thank you so much, Paul, for being such an amazing guest. I hope you had as much fun with this episode as I did. Uh, be sure to check out Paul's links down in the description below to go listen to the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoy educational podcasts or if you're a nerd about history like I am, you're going to have a blast with his podcast. So I definitely go recommend checking them out. Uh, also, make sure you go down in our uh, description below to find all of our links for all of our social media. If you want to follow us or uh, shout any episodes out for that you want us to cover, but either topics or guests or both or if you want to be on the podcast be sure to do that as well uh, also once again another reminder check out the minecraft series on the youtube channel right now that is youtube.com slash talk ag to me um, you can go check us out as we advance through the various revolutions of agriculture just like we talked about in today's episode uh, we also have all of our links down there for uh, anything you want to do make sure you like comment subscribe share follow do all the things and as usual share with not just your online friends but your offline ones too and your family um, and if you want to donate and help out the patreon link will be down in the description as well it is always appreciated but never required uh, i think that's all i have for you guys this week so i hope to catch you guys in the next one in two weeks um make sure you check out last week's or uh, a couple weeks ago's episode if you haven't already but thank you all so much for the support and for joining me on, on all this um and yeah i think we're gonna have a lot of fun so thank you guys so much for tuning in i hope to catch you in the next one and don't forget if you ate today think a farmer